Amen. That's our King. I'm excited to be here. How about you? All right. Good morning. My name is Eric. I get to be the pastor here. I just want to say welcome. So glad to see you. So glad that you are here today. Uh, I've got four kids, eight, five, three, and two months old. And I love telling my kids bedtime stories. One of my favorite things is to tell this same story uh, that I've told them a couple times. My kids ask for it again and again and again. And it goes something like this. Once upon a time, like every good story, once upon a time, there is a good and wise king, King Eric, of course, a good and wise king who ruled wisely and justly, and everyone flourished, and all the kingdom was beautiful, and everything was great and wonderful. And then we introduced some conflict and some resolution, and it's a fun story I like to tell, because there's something about stories that just gets us going. And particularly, there's something about stories about kings. When we read literature throughout different areas of the world, there's this idea of, throughout literature, of a good and wise, just king. And under this king, everyone flourished and blossomed. But then something happened, and the king went away. And now we are eagerly waiting for the king to return. Robin Hood, one of my favorite stories myth built on truth. And Robin Hood is coming up against Prince John, who's usurping the throne, and they're waiting for the true King Richard to come back. And once the king comes back, he'll make everything right. King Arthur, one of the most well-known myths of a king, and under King Arthur, and the idea of Camelot that was bigger than just one castle, the idea that all men are equal, the round table, and this idea that Camelot, that, that uh, might doesn't make right, but that the strong uses their strength for the weak, but then something happens to Arthur, and he dies, and on his tomb says, here lies Arthur, rex quandrum, rex que futurus, which means the once and future king. Arthur, the once and will be again the future king. One of our great, more modern day epics of our time, the Lord of the Rings. I love the Lord of the Rings. And the idea is that there's a true king in the north, hidden, and everyone is waiting for the true king to reveal himself. And they say, the hands of the king are healing ants, and thus shall the rightful king be known. And the hands of the king are healing hands. And when he comes back, everything will be made right and the world will blossom once again. Why all these legends throughout history in different cultures? Why this idea, this longing for a true and just king when the actual record of humanity is so different? Throughout history, pretty much every king used their strength for themselves, not to protect the weak. Every king was corrupted and just did things for himself, was greedy. History is littered with kings who abused their powers, who didn't protect the weak. And now pretty much every single monarchy has been uprooted and replaced by democracy. So why such fascination with the old legends, this idea of longing for a king when actual history shows the kings aren't very good, actually? Why are we so fascinated with the idea of, of a royal 
line. Why was everyone so fascinated with the most recent royal wedding between Meghan Markle and Prince Harry? You know, why was the movie Black Panther such a big success? You know, Wakanda forever, you know? How many saw Black Panther? It's an amazing movie. This idea of this hidden kingdom with a good king who protects others by using his strength. Why is that so, that message so powerful? Why in America, where we don't have kings and queens, we have this need to create our own royalty, where we turn billionaires and athletes and movie stars into kings and queens? I mean, come on. LeBron James has been in the news. Uh, he created this awesome school. But what's his nickname? Anybody know? King James, right? We literally make him a king. Uh, my man, Russell Wilson, you guys know I'm a huge kind of man crush on Russell Wilson, but Russell Wilson and Ciara, I mean, they're total modern day royalty. When you see them out and about, they're like total kings and queens. Uh, you know, Beyonce is known as Queen Bee. Like, so why is there this need for crowns and royalty in our lives when the actual record of kings isn't a good one? Here's what Tim Keller, he's an author and pastor of a church in New York City, Redeemer Church says. He says, Democracy is medicine, not food. We have to have democracy because none of us are fit to rule. But we were made for a king. There is a memory trace in you and me of a great king, a king who rules with compassion and wisdom and glory. We know we were built to stand and submit to that king. The Bible tells us that all earthly kings dim are but dim reflections of the true and great king. Today, as we've been walking our way through the book of Psalms this summer, and we've been diving around to different Psalms, we're going to go back to kind of the beginning of the book and look at Psalm 2. It's a messianic Psalm. It's a Psalm that talks about King David. We find out in Acts 4, it says that this is about King David, and there's kind of an immediate context, and then an ultimate context that's pointing to something in the future to come, the anointed one, someone of David's line, the Messiah, the Christ. If you're taking notes this morning, I encourage you to take notes uh, inside your program. We don't want to just give you a bunch of information, but we want to help you have a life of transformation. So we think if you can hear it, if you can write it down, you can see it, you can discuss it, maybe this week with your kids or or your spouse or or some friends, help get those truths down deep into our hearts. Uh, Before we go any further, would you just join me in a word of prayer? God, I thank you that you, our king, humbled yourself and died a death on the cross so that we can be made right with you. And so God, I pray right now that as we look at Psalm 2, as we continue this series, God, that the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, oh God. God, that your Holy Spirit would be here, revealing, um, guiding, convicting, encouraging us. I thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Well, three things we're going to see from Psalm 2 is we're going to see that we have a king, we hate the king, but we need the king. We have a king, we hate the king, but we need the king. See, the truth is we have a king, but even if you reject this king, you will find someone or something to serve, someone or something to look up to, something in your life that will be a king to you. Perhaps... On a political spectrum, maybe for you it was Obama. Maybe now you see the political climate and man, you miss Obama. And Obama, that is that was the height of it. Maybe for you, you are so pumped and for Trump 
and now you're like, this is awesome, and, and you're lifting him up as the savior to come. Maybe you're a fan of Bernie. You're like, man, we just need to get Bernie back, you know? Maybe you're thinking, if we could just get a Democrat in the White House, that would fix everything. Or maybe you're thinking, we just need to get this kind of judge on the Supreme Court, and that will solve everything. See, the Bible says you will find a white knight. You will find someone to pin your hopes on. You will find a savior. It's in your blood. You need a king. If you don't find the real king, then you will find a false king. If you, do not, you see, what, what happens is if we deny our bodies good, healthy food, when we get hungry enough, we will eat anything, any kind of junk. If you're out stuck at sea and you have no water, you get thirsty enough, you will drink salt water because you, you know it's poison, but you get so desperate, you eventually gobble something up that's not good for you. If you deny your spiritual nature, your need for a king, you'll eventually gobble up something else, something that is harmful for to you, that is eventually going to lead you to be destroyed. If you have your Bibles, you can open up with me, Psalm chapter 2. The scriptures will also be here on the side screen. I'll be reading out of the ESV version. Chapter uh, 2, verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. At first he's talking about David, but then he says, I've set my king and I've called this king my son and I've given him all the nations of the world to rule. So we ask, is this just hyperbole? Is this just poetic device? Or did God truly say this to someone? You are my son. In you, I am well pleased. I'm giving you the nations. And the message of the Gospels is that, yes, there really is a good and true king that God has given to the nations, Messiah, Christ, the anointed one. We have a king whether or not we acknowledge it, we have a king above us, and if we reject that king, we will choose to make someone else our hope, our white knight, our king. Number two, we hate the king. One, verse one through three. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 2 is telling us we naturally hate the king. The kings in this psalm are upset because they have an owner, a king of kings over them. And that Hebrew word for, for bond could also be translated as yoke. It's something that would tie a pair of oxen to a cart or horses. It's a harness. See, the kings are upset that someone owns them. The creator has rights over them. And they say, but... I want to be my own. I don't want any yoke upon me. I want to be my own. And I think that's the basic impulse of every human heart. I want to be my own. George MacDonald was a Scottish author, poet, and minister in the late 1800s, had a profound influence on C.S. Lewis. And here's what he said. He said, for the one principle of hell is I am my own. 
I am my own king and my own subject. I am the center from which go out my thoughts. I am the object and the end of my thoughts. Back upon me as the alpha and omega of life, my thoughts return. My own glory is and ought to be my chief care, my ambition to gather the regards of men to the one center myself. My pleasure is my pleasure. My kingdom is as many as I can bring to acknowledge my greatness over them. George MacDonald saying that the natural condition of the human heart is to say, I am my own. The central conviction of hell is I am my own. See, this is the one conviction that will create hell. I am my own. It will create hell in your relationships, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your marriage, in your life, that I am my own. I belong to no one but myself. But this is naturally what every human feels. I am my own. See, the Bible says that we hate the idea of a king over us, a king who says, you belong to me. You need to do what I say. So that's why humans don't just disbelieve in God. We hate him. The Bible says our natural state is enmity with God. There is a true king, but we hate him. We live in rebellion and rejection to him. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, Eric, come on, you're being a little extreme here. People don't hate God. They don't hate religion. We're very tolerant. You can do what you want as long as you do your thing. Let me do my thing. See, but the... Bible doesn't say people hate the idea of God. People are very tolerant about the idea of God and the idea of religion. See, people are hostile to, towards the biblical God. The biblical God at Mount Sinai who says, who thunders from the mountain, be holy as I am holy. The idea of his anointed, of Jesus, who said, unless you hate your mother and father, you cannot be my disciple. Which means unless you love me so much that every other relationship looks like hate, that you cannot follow me. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I want just a little corner of your heart. I want it all. That's the kind of people, like, that, that's, that's the kind of God that people hate. That's the kind of Jesus that people reject. Not just someone offering a little bit of advice over here, but the Jesus who says, I need it all. And maybe there's some of you right now who are even getting a little squirmy and uncomfortable. It's like, I don't like this idea of this God who owns me, this Jesus who demands everything. And I say, that's, that's the point. We naturally hate the king. The idea of belonging to someone and having to do what they say, we hate that. You might say, well, I believe in a God of love. See, people don't have a problem with love. They have an issue with the king who's in charge, who's in authority, says, this is how you live. You are my citizen. You do what I say. People hate the idea of bowing to a king. We have a king. We hate the king, but we need the king. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Serve the king, love the king, kiss the king, rejoice in the king, and so be blessed. You might be saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. How can bondage and ownership and being yoked 
mean freedom and blessing. That doesn't make any sense to me, Eric, because in America, freedom is all about doing what I want, how I want it, when I want it, have it your way, Burger King, right? That's what freedom means. But see, there is no refuge from the king. This king is a fierce warrior king before whom all the rulers of the earth must bow. There is no refuge from this king. There is only refuge found in the king. Verse 10 tells us that if the yoke eventually becomes your refuge. Confinement eventually becomes spaciousness. Service eventually becomes freedom. That is the great mystery of Christianity, that you need that yoke. That yoke is the only way into freedom. Maybe this will help, an example. Imagine a, a, a young lady, and she has a tremendous gift and aptitude for music, and you are her parent. So what are you going to do? The yoke. <laughs> she, you want to yoke her to the piano, to her practice time. And while all her other friends are outside, having fun, doing their thing, Day after day, she's practicing those mindless scales. And day after day, she's practicing all her exercises. And, and she's yoked to that piano. And it's confining. And, and there's boredom. And there's monotony as she's just tied to that piano. Endless drudgery of scales and exercises day after day after day. But what happens? Eventually, the yoke becomes her refuge. As time goes on, her artistic skills start to blossom. And she's able to express herself on that piano like never before. Like not even she can use words to express herself, but her heart and her soul through the music that she can make through the piano. Because eventually that yoke becomes her refuge. That yoke becomes the way of finding freedom and expansiveness. See, so often you'll hear kids when they're older, maybe college students say, Mom, Dad, why didn't you make me practice my piano? I regret quitting so much. And see, the only thing a parent can say is ultimately, each one of us has to decide to accept the yoke or to throw it off. As parents, we can lead, we can guide, we can encourage, but at the end of the day, that child has the decision. Am I going to keep with this sport and work hard at it till eventually it becomes, as I dance, as I do gymnastics, as I play this sport, a, a way to express myself and I find freedom in it, into this musical instrument, drama, whatever it might be? We have a choice. Are we going to submit to that yoke or are we going to throw it off? So you and I will blossom and flourish in a way you never would have before if you come under the yoke of the king. Because the Bible says you need a king. We're trying to get back to Camelot. But unless you submit what you were made for, you will never find true freedom. See, here's what I know. Every heart has two deep longings. Number one, am I making any difference in this world? Am I changing things at all? Is what I do matters? Changing these diapers, homeschooling my kid, going to the office, punching the clock, is what I'm doing making any difference? Or, or am I just, it doesn't matter that I'm here. Everyone has that question, that longing. 
And number two, we all want to know that we are loved, that someone knows us, that someone loves us, that someone accepts us. And the only way to answer those questions is to serve the king. You see, when you serve the king, he serves you. When you kiss the king, he kisses you, and you will satisfy your deepest longings. As you serve the king, you will know that your, your life is making a difference, that you are serving at the pleasure of the king and making an eternal difference here on the earth. As you serve the king, as he serves you, as you come under his love and affection, you will know that you are loved, you are known, you are accepted. So how, how do we serve the king? A couple ways. Number one, we obey. We obey what he tells us to do. Each of us has to decide, is Jesus king or just a consultant? Is he king over our life? And we obey and submit to everything he says, or is he just someone we consult when we need a little bit of good advice? Number two, we submit. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. We say, okay, Jesus, put your yoke on me as I learn how to live in the way that I've been designed because we know that's the only way towards true freedom. Number three, rely on Jesus to kiss the son, to say, I'm leaning on you. I am trusting in you. And then number four, expect You have a king coming into your life. You can expect him to take care of you. You can expect that when you have these worries, these fears, these uncertainties, and you give them over, as you give your life over to the king, you can expect that he will come in, that he is a king, mighty in power. There is nothing in your life too great for him. There is nothing in your past too big for the king to handle. There is nothing going on right now that the king cannot take care of. Amen. In Psalm 2, it says, you are my son. Where have I heard that phrase again? That's the phrase that the father speaks to Jesus at his baptism. And that word begotten often relates to birth, but can also mean gotten hold of you. At that moment of Jesus' baptism, Jesus is committing himself to the task the Father had set before him. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son. This is the fulfillment of of this messianic psalm from a thousand years before the line of David, that one was coming who God would say, you are my son, you are my anointed, you are the king we've been waiting for. Here's what I know, that if you choose to identify yourself with the king, to accept his yoke, to say, Jesus, I am following you, the devil is gonna attack your identity as a son or daughter of the king. See, following Jesus' baptism and his commission the devil immediately questions it in the wilderness. The Bible tells us that after his baptism, Jesus was led out into the wilderness in the next chapter. Matthew chapter four, verse three, and the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, Jesus has this moment at the baptism, everyone hears confirmation that he is the anointed one, he is the son of God, and right after that, the devil says, well, if you are the son of God, do this. 
If you choose to identify with the king, our enemy, the devil, is going to attack your identity. Baptism is a symbol of identifying with Jesus, of taking on that yoke. It's a symbol of repentance, of saying, you know what, I've been going my own way no longer. Now I'm going to submit to the king. And here at Mosaic, baptism shouldn't be something we just tolerate. It should be something we celebrate, amen? Because we celebrate what matters. The world celebrates what's temporary, and the church celebrates what's eternal, radically transformed lives, lives that were going their own way, seeking after their own king, but instead now submitted and bowed the knee to Jesus, making him the king, because we know that's the only way we're going to find freedom and forgiveness is through Christ and baptism is standing there in the water representing who you used to be. Then you go under the water to identify with dying with Christ. Then you're raised out of the water to represent that you have new life in Jesus, that you are now a son or daughter of the king, that you have a new identity. But here's the truth. Someone or something is going to try to talk you out of getting baptized. How do I know that? The same thing happened to Jesus in verse 14 of chapter 3. It says, but John, his cousin, tried to talk him out of it. Because I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, so why are you coming to me? The point is, if someone tried to talk Jesus out of getting baptized, about submitting to the will of his father, someone or something is going to try to talk you out of it. You're going to try to talk yourself out of it. Ah, I don't need to get baptized. Ah, I don't want to do that in front of a bunch of people. Ah, it's kind of scary. So real quick, as I wrap up, I just want to cover three quick objections to those maybe who are struggling with the idea of getting baptized. Number one, you might be saying, well, I was baptized as a baby. Do I need to get baptized again? My question is, have you been baptized since you chose to follow Jesus, since you made the decision to identify with the king, to submit to his yoke? If not, then you need to get baptized. What about baby baptism? That was an unbelievably significant event in the life of your parents. And they did nothing wrong. It's not sin, it's not wrong, but believer's baptism is after we've chosen to submit to the king, to identify with Jesus. As Jesus was baptized, we get baptized too. And believer's baptism is the ultimate fulfillment of the hope of your parents. That when they baptized you as a baby, they were hoping, they were praying that you would grow up loving and serving the king. And when you choose to identify with Jesus, you're saying, I'm fulfilling the hope and the promise that my parents had for me when I was a little kid. Number two, you might say, I'm just scared. Well, here's the good news. Here at Mosaic, we've yet to drown anyone yet, all right? We have a 100% success rate. So far, we are professional baptizers. No one has not come back up. We promise you, you will not be harmed getting baptized. Don't worry, you've, n- you've not done too many bad things that all of a sudden the water is going to shock you or something. It's no worries. And when you come up out of the water, a bunch of people are going to lose their darn minds because they are so excited for what you're going to do. See, because when you go and when you choose to get baptized, nerves and all, when you're scared, you are literally fulfilling the prayers of hundreds of people who are praying for you to take that step, to bow the knee to your king, to identify with him. It's literally a fulfillment of why we started this church. Number three, you might say, well, I'm just a private person. Can I just do my own bathtub and like baptize myself? Is that, does that work? <laughs> I've actually had someone ask me that. 
You might be saying, well, Baptist, I'm just so public. I'm private. I'm an introvert. Followers of Jesus don't have the privilege of being private with our faith. Jesus lived a public life, did public miracles, died a public death, was raised back to life and showed up publicly. He's coming back again publicly. Jesus publicly accepts you how you are right now. And the least we can do is say, okay, you know what? I'm scared. This isn't my thing. I don't like being in front of people. But I'm in front of people who love me, my church family, to say I am publicly committing to following Jesus. Baptism is the external expression of the inward decision to say, Jesus, you are my savior. Jesus, you are my king. I am accepting your yoke. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to rely on you. We cannot procrastinate what Jesus clearly commanded. This is not an option. This is a command. Obedience isn't something you have to pray about. Obedience now leads to opportunities later. When you are obedient now, it'll open up opportunities later for blessings to be poured out upon you. And we baptize by immersion because that's how Jesus was baptized. And we want to be like Jesus. As Jesus was heading back up to heaven, after he'd fulfilled his calling as the anointed one, as the Christ, as the king who died for us and then was raised again, he's given some of his last final instructions to his disciples. In Matthew 28, 19, he says, go, therefore, or as you are going, in your everyday going, go, make disciples. It's simply someone who knows Jesus, wants to be like Jesus and do the things that Jesus did. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus commands us, believe, be baptized, obey. Jesus says, I want you to do what you did so that you can become like me. See, the identifying mark of being a follower of Jesus is not a fish on the back of your car. It's not KTIS programmed into program number one on your radio. It's not walking around with a giant study Bible. The identifying mark of a follower of Jesus is being baptized. It's submitting yourself. It's identifying with Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's how we submit to the king. That's how we bow the knee to the king. So I want to ask you, do you need to be baptized? At the end of this month, we're going to gather at Weaver Lake Beach. This will be our third time doing it. And it's just awesome. Each time we've had beautiful weather. It seems each time there's clouds overhead and we wonder if it's going to rain and the clouds part. And like these shafts of light shoot down. It's pretty crazy. And we're just going to take you into the lake. Waist deep. A bunch of people are going to stand on the shore. And then you're just going to publicly acknowledge that you are submitting to the king. You are following Jesus. We're going to dunk you into the water, bring you back up, and people are just going to lose their minds, and they're just going to cheer. That's why we're here, to help people understand you have a king. Naturally, you and I, we hate the king. We don't like to be submitted to someone else, to someone else telling us what to do. But the reality is we need the king. We need to submit to Jesus, because if we don't, we'll make someone or something else a king in our lives. But Jesus is the only path, the only king who offers true freedom, who offers forgiveness, who offers acceptance. Do you need to be baptized? Maybe you haven't taken that step to bow the knee, to make that internal decision to follow Jesus. Before we close this morning, I want to give you that opportunity to say, you know what, Jesus, I haven't submitted to you. I've been treating you more as a consultant than as a king. 
Can I just ask every head to be bowed, every eye closed? Right now, I just want to give you the opportunity, maybe there's someone in this room who just says, you know what, I want to move from being my own king to submitting the knee to Jesus and to be adopted into the family of God, to find forgiveness for the things that I've done wrong, to find healing for the ways that people have wronged me. The Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouths, if we believe in our hearts that Christ is Lord, that he is king, that he is savior, that we will be saved. And that is the only way to true freedom. If you would like the opportunity, I want you to just respond by lifting your hand. And I just do that because I believe that God is doing something real right now in your heart. And when we respond physically on the outside, it makes it that much more real. So the count of three, if you want to just publicly acknowledge that you want to make Jesus the leader of your life for the first time, I just want to invite you to put your hand up in the air at the count of three. One, God loves you. Two, you'll never be the same. Three, put your hand in the air. If you want to submit your knee to Jesus for the very first time, is there anyone today, this morning? I see that hand. Thank you. Praise God. The Bible tells us that today you are a daughter of the king. For others in this room, I want to invite you to respond. Perhaps right now you've already bowed the knee to Jesus, but you know you have not fully submitted parts of your life to God. You know you are doing things on your own strength instead of by the power of the Holy Spirit. That you are not obeying all that Jesus has taught us to do. And this morning, you just want to acknowledge and say, Jesus, I need your Holy Spirit to come into my life. I want to trust you to be my king. I have not served you faithfully, but I'm recommitting right now just to say, you are my king. If you'd like to do that, I want to invite you to raise your hand. One, two, three. Put your hand in the air if you just say, this morning, Jesus, I need to reach out to you. Yes, 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 yes. Amen, amen. Would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you for those in this room uh, who want to bow the knee to you for the first time, for those who are saying, you know what, I need to recommit. I need to, to re-sign up to say that you are my king. God, I pray right now that you would fill each and every one of us with your Holy Spirit, God, that you would empower us to do the work of spreading your kingdom, of loving others, of serving others. God, I pray that you would be our good and wise and gracious king that we gladly serve. And as we accept your yoke upon our lives, God, that we would find that would be the instrument of freedom, of, 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 of knowing a life that matters. God, of knowing that we are truly and utterly loved, so loved by you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me? I want to encourage you, maybe as you've been following Jesus, you've been a fan, and you've, you're wearing his jersey. You know, like I said, I love Russell Wilson. I've got a Russell Wilson jersey. I have to admit, I'm going to the preseason game against the Vikings. I will be wearing my Russell Wilson jersey at the Vikings game. I know, sorry, sorry. It's okay to be a fan, but I want to encourage each one of us to move from just being a fan to take off the jersey and to put on the ring. The ring that says, I am committed to my king. I'm not just a fan, but I am his. He is mine. 
moving from just being a fan to someone who's in that committed relationship with Jesus. Imagine a community of people who are on mission together to say, you know what? We're all broken, we're all mixed up. We're all broken pieces, but God is forming us into his beautiful work of art, his mosaic. Imagine a community that's welcoming and accepting to others. That's what God has called us to be, to do, as we serve the king together. Would you receive the benediction? And you know this week that your king loves you. He so loves you so much that Jesus came. He died on the earth for you. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. But your king loves you so, so much. May you be fueled by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit this week. May you be strengthened by the knowledge that the love of Christ will never let you down. That your king is bigger than anything that you are facing this week. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.